You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. In preparation for today's episode, and this is, I think, my 152nd, somewhere in there, had a, a few. I don't know that I have experienced this incredible range of emotion as I prepared for my guests. I literally, I, there were times because of a video I watched. I was sweating profusely, shaking, crying. I had to pause the video because it just absolutely reached out and grabbed me. That doesn't happen very often for me. And there's a reason for that, and you'll learn about that in a moment. And I don't know that I've had the opportunity to in interview guests that are doing something so profoundly important for people that maybe call it a, have a, maybe a disadvantage, and that's probably not the best way to say it, but they might not have the same gifts that we have, for example. And they're pouring out their heart and soul to have kids primarily have experiences that will change their lives so that they can be as fulfilled as possible and have their dreams come true, maybe even have dreams where they didn't have any. And that is something really, really special. It gives me such great pleasure to introduce to you Stephen and Elizabeth Wampler. And I don't know today if they're in California or they're in the Sierra Nevadas or up around Yosemite or wherever they are. But Stephen and Elizabeth, welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. Thank you for taking time to join me. It's great to see you. How are you today? And I'll start with you, Stephen. We're awesome. We're great. We're in rainy San Diego, California. It's going down right now. Well, San Diego um, is a great place to be if you're from North Dakota. And trust me, yeah. this time of year, everyone in North Dakota, generally speaking, would like to be somewhere a little bit warmer. And how are you, Elizabeth? I am wonderful. Thank you for that beautiful intro. Thank you. It was very generous and very kind of you. Thanks. Thanks very, very much. Well, thank you for taking time to to share your story and your, your life with me. The, the way I came to learn about Stephen and Elizabeth is through social media. And, and I need to plug that because, yes, and if we just have gone through another hearing in Washington about some of the awful parts of social media. And there are, there are some parts of social media that are just awful, but there are some beautiful stories and people that share information about their walk uh, through social media tools. And Stephen and Elizabeth have done that. And I stumbled across it. Uh, reached out to Stephen first through, I think it was an email, 
or a text or something and asked him, would you join me? And he said, yes. We had a quick call and here we are. Right. So, so I, I need to share with you that Stephen was born with cerebral palsy. And so if there are times you might have some challenge understanding him, it's because he has cerebral palsy. And yep. I'm going to pause there and go to Elizabeth first. Uh, Elizabeth, in one of the social media clips, you said this beautiful thing about most of us that um, might be uncomfortable talking about disabilities. And you give this, you just gave this beautiful, beautiful way of how we can kind of cross that bridge. And if, if you remember the clip I'm talking about, would you kind of share with the importance of how we, that might be uncomfortable, because we don't know how to bring it up, how we can do a better job of doing that? So I I have kind of a unique situation because when I, when I met Stephen, I was the most apprehensive person he had ever met. I, by far, <laughs> I made a, I made a lot of, um, now I realize assumptions about him <clears throat> related to his disability. I assumed that he was sad. I assumed that he was lonely. I assumed he didn't have any friends. I would, and I, I say that out loud and I tell him myself happily and, and openly because once I got to the other side and once I got familiar with him, got all the curiosity that I had about his disability out of the way, it took his disability away from me. Uh, but I looked around and I knew that there were so many people who, you know, at least partially thought what I did and, and made assumptions like I had. And I regret those, but um, it is just, disability is a nuanced topic. And we, <clears throat> If, if you're anything like me, um, I most certainly had wonderful parents and the best they knew to do was have me not stare. And I have said, I've said to many friends, I've posed the question about if, if they had the same experience with their parents. And I think without exception, they've said, yes, my parent, it was the kindest they knew to be and they taught me not to stare. Um, and so I think it's a matter of getting the elephant out of the room around disability. And instead of looking away, looking right at it and educating yourself a little bit about it, having real compassion for yourself, for what you never learned, but that you're willing to learn now. And I think that's where the beauty seeps in and the the eye-opening experiences happen, but it came and, and it began with me um, from, such an awkward place. And now that I'm on the other side of it, um, I understand. I understand there, there are lots of reasons that people feel uh, awkward, timid around people with disabilities. Yeah. So, Stephen, the, I'm going to have a kind of a two, maybe almost three-part question. Uh, first of all, you were born with cerebral palsy. And my, my first question would be, my understanding is there are levels or five different types, I think, 
something like that. Um, what what would be the severity level, if that's the correct way to phrase it, that you have? And then born into this world with cerebral palsy, and as you're growing up, how did your parents and your family treat you compared to uh, other siblings, if you have siblings, and other people that you associated with? Um, I would say CP is bigger than it's a big range of people um, I'm probably right in the middle of that great range, if you will. Um, there, there are people walking around that you wouldn't even know had CP. And the people that can't move and are mentally all there but can't commit. commit communicate or get up at a bed or anything. So I'm probably right in the middle of the range of um, severity of CP. Um, my parents were, uh, I would say, very tough on me. I would say my parents were very tough on me. Um, they expected a lot out of me, um, and they treated me just like any other of the five kids that they had uh, growing up. Um, they expected me. They ex expected me to go to college, um, get a job. Um, get married, have kids. I mean, they didn't, they didn't really see that coming, but um, I expected it for myself. Um, I knew it was gonna be hard, but um, I would say I, that it takes the right person to accept me who I am, and I've been right one. Hmm. Thank you for that. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to ask that two-part question first, I once worked at a bar restaurant, and I, I have to be careful how I share this. And one of the employees, who and his name was Paul, okay. Usually it was kind of responsible for helping clean the kitchen and some of those kind of things. And he rode a, a three-wheeled bicycle, had some real challenges with mobility, okay. but he could he could get around, had um, some speech challenges where you had to really make sure that when you were listening that you would look at him and pay attention. One time, you know, we had in North Dakota in winter, you have some awful weather. We had a kind of a blizzard rolling. It was about 30 below, and we got, I didn't want Paul to ride home on his bike. So along with another person, I gave him a ride. And 
as we're leaving the parking lot, he says, um, in, in a way that was at first kind of hard to understand, he asked, do you mind if I sing? And I had to have him repeat it because I, I wasn't sure what I heard. And I said, no, please do it. And all of a sudden, from the back of my car, Paul is singing, take me out to the ball game, like Luciano Pavarotti. Wow. If a guy I could barely understand when he would talk. Mm -hmm. And then after, and I stopped the car because I had to turn around and say, is there somebody in this back seat other than Paul? <laughs> and then he asked if he could sing another song. And then he sang the Our Father. And I wept. And I share that with you because I didn't, I had no idea Paul had this gift. Um, and I, I knew he had CP. I didn't know much about CP. And I didn't know much more until I started doing research for our, our talk today. So that's one of the reasons I asked that question, because I'm ignorant to the levels, the severity, et cetera, et cetera. And I will, I will remember that. I will remember Paul the rest of my life. Elizabeth, um, before I move on to another topic, <clears throat> not everyone in the world is drawn to somebody in a wheelchair. And, and in terms of love, married couple kind of love, mm -hmm. how does that kind of go from apprehension to you, you fall in love with this guy, you want to get married. How did, if you don't mind me asking that question. Don't at all. In fact, I so appreciate that question. Um, well, first of all, I, I never in a million years did I think, you know, I would marry Stephen or somebody with a disability. I didn't really know anybody growing up with a disability, you know, that had a disability. Um, and if I'm very, very honest, um, I was okay with that again, because People with disabilities just made me sad. So what happened is that <clears throat> um, we were thrown into the same si social situation three times in a row. So we were young in our town, both relatively new to the town, and we, we were invited to the same three dinner parties right in a row. And at those dinner parties, I... Um, I certainly, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable. I didn't talk to Stephen or anything, but just as a person trying to be a better human being, I was observing and, and pretending that I didn't notice, but um, just as a human being on the earth, I looked around and noticed that I was the only one that had a, a social issue with him. Everyone else was completely acclimated and fine. And I wondered what was wrong with me. And I also <laughs> wondered what they had done to, to become so completely comfortable. Um, and as time went on and these dinner parties happened, and then a bunch of people our age would play volleyball in a park on Sundays. And he would, Stephen was always there watching and hanging out with everyone. Um, absolutely. As one of the crowd, I started to, get more and more curious and certainly platonically only that's it, it, yeah having a romantic relationship never entered my mind but i i would kind of sidle up a little bit closer and observe and learn and and before i knew it we were friends and i mm -hmm. yeah and it was it was uh 
it was a it was a big friendship. It was I I thought the world of him. We were raised identically. Our values are the same. We just lined up again platonically, like I had never experienced in my whole life. And so, um, I had to do a lot of talking to myself because I was slowly getting a crush on him. But it was so unusual that it felt impossible. And I didn't know how anybody navigated a life like the one I was contemplating. Um, and and in the very in the beginning, it was out of the question just because I didn't know I didn't know what my life would look like. I had no way of I, I didn't have anyone to look to or watch from a distance. I had nothing. And it felt very impossible. But the the thing that happened is that he is a person, he is a human being with all his strength and all his masculinity um, won. It just won out. And I, I had to take a step forward and a couple steps back all the time. And mm. I'm close to chickening out and then needing to be with him. And it's as simple as that. It was not, it was not a, a smooth path, but our relationship was a smooth path. It was mm. fantastic. But the final straw was when one day because I was grappling with how sorry I felt for him, how sad he still made me, even though I was falling in love with him. So it was this dilemma. Um, I said, if, if you could snap your fingers and be out of that chair, would you? And he said, no. Hmm. And I never in a million years expected that. I, I never expected that. But what it did for me is make me realized that as much as he'd been trying to tell me, he didn't care that he had a disability, that he was not at all sad. It was that statement. If he could change it, would he? And when he said no, it opened the floodgates and made me realize it, that on no level did I need to feel sorry for him. And I didn't any longer from that second on. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Stephen, yeah. while she was forming a crush for you. Was that happening for you or oh, yeah. Elizabeth? Yes. Okay. It was. Um, I was feeling that way like three months before she was. And I was having um, apprehensions asking her out. And I just... Um, what, it was like four months after we met, and I just said, okay, I'm going to do it, and after out, and... Yeah. And, when, and when he asked me out, it was on the phone, and I had just gotten to a place where I could understand him, because I most certainly did not in the beginning. Um, I had just gotten used to it. I had just gotten used to his speech impediment, which he calls his accent. <laughs> um, <I> just, <laughs> and then he called me on the phone for the first time, and I was back to square one. I'm and you were nervous. You were, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like what? I have no so idea what you're saying. We went out, and that was it. We were done. Boom. <laughs> well, one thing I've, I've noticed... For, 
from the, the numerous uh, video clips, including your TEDx talks that I have viewed. Stephen, you have this, in, you're funny. You have this incredible sense of, sense of humor and you're a handsome guy, it's, especially when now, when you look at me, you're going to say, what does this guy know about hair? But when you were younger, you had this great head. Of, you still have great oh, hair. Yeah. This great head of hair. You could look like you could be in a rock and roll band. You have this great <laughs> sense of humor. You're smart. So it all makes sense to me. Before I start talking about the ascent, because uh, you, you brought this up, Stephen, your parents expected you to go to school, go to college, get a job. Yep. You you went to college. What did you study? And bef before you started the foundation, what were you doing? I um, graduated from UC, UC Davis with an environmental engineering degree. And um, that was way back when. And got out of graduate and got a job with a big corporation in San Diego. Um, and worked there for three years and hated every minute of it. And the corporate got bought out and I got laid off. And that's when we started our own company. Um, that's a different story, but, um, and then 9-11 happened and that company went away and we formed it the uh, foundation right after, right after 9-11. Yep. Well, that also tells folks that you're scary smart. Environmental engineering. I used to work for uh, engineering firms. Oh. And well aware, I'm not an engineer. I, I was the chief marketing officer. Um, so I, I know a lot about your background. So I mentioned the ascent. Yep. And thank you for suggesting that I watch the video, the movie on your website. Folks, by the way, Stephen, and that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-J Wampler, W-A-M-P-L-E-R.com. Did I do that right? Stephen.org. Excuse me. So Stephen J. Wampler foundation.org yeah foundation.org thank you yeah and uh, and we'll, we'll also post that on, on my website yeah. and right. we'll repeat it again you've got to go and you have to watch this movie we're about to talk about steven suggested i watch it you know i seem to recall some stories in the news but i didn't really pay attention yeah. Folks, Stephen decided one day, and I'm going to have him tell the story, that he was going to scale El Capitan, which is in Yosemite, 7,500 plus feet. This is not an easy feat. And it's recommended that only experienced climbers attempt to scale, climb El Capitan. 
and people about 30 have lost their lives trying to do it. So, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> share with us what in the world crossed your mind that you said, I'm going to climb this baby. Um, in 2009, we're going through some um, um, growing spurts with the foundation and really wanted to put our foundation on the map, so to speak. And I happened to be in Yosemite um, in that spring of 2009 and happened to be looking up at this sheer rock pits. And I went back to the campfire and there were disabled climbers at the fire that night. And I asked them, has anyone with CP climbed El Cat? And they said, no, no one ever tried, ever attempted to um, climb El El Cat. And so I thought about it overnight. I said, well, if the guys around the campfire that are paraplegics can climb it, I'm going to try to figure out how figure how to do myself. And um, so I went home after that trip. I went to my wife and said, here's here's the deal. You can't say anything before months because my wife has a really, really Big mouth, big mouth, <laughs> and she would tell everybody, sure. and she would like, <laughs> tell, like within one day that I was going to call me up. So I said, you can't tell anyone, not a soul, because I don't know if I can do, do it or not. So basically, I... Figured things out over four months, and I worked out, and after four months, I said, okay, I think you can, I I think I can really do this, and, and finish the climb. And so for 18 months, I worked out in the gym, I worked out climbing in another gym and basically took on LCAP without really knowing what I was get, getting into. Yeah. Um, and thank God I didn't know much because it was not fun <laughs> at all. I'm going to come back to you in a second, Stephen. Uh, right. Elizabeth. When he told you what he was planning to do, what was the first thing that crossed your mind? Do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 
it's it may be a little bit hard to articulate, but it almost feels sometimes like Stephen and I are the same person, and we we're on such a parallel track with our life and our life's work and our uh, our way of thinking. Um, that for some reason, out of ignorance, um, related to what he was about to do, um, I said, absolutely. The, as, I, as I watched, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, folks, because you're going to go to this website. You, yeah. you, you have to go to the website. Stephen J- yes, and watch it. Because it is, it's gripping, and it's, it's. For me, at times it was frightening, but it was also liberating. It was inspirational, and uh, there were a couple times that I, I used language I don't typically use a lot, uh, especially the transition from the chair to the, I'm going to call it the cot. You're here on the side of the face of this. Uh, mountain really 77,500 plus feet and the, the the filming of it startled me it, that transition absolutely startled me Stephen you said you went to the gym for oh, the yeah. most for, for most of your life you've been confined to a wheelchair right or some device what were the exercises, I think I know, what were the exercises that you went through for 18 months to get you in shape to scale El Cap? Um, basically, I, my whole body, I did, I had to set it out for five hours a day. And most of that was upper body. And most of that was pull-ups. I was doing anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 pull-ups a day, doing twice my body weight. Um, and I would do reps on the hundred at a time over and over and over again. And I would do like core strength, I would do shoulder and back strength. I would do everything so I would physically was ready for this six-day climb. And this was in part, maybe totally, driven by the foundation that you have formed, the camp that you have for kids with disabilities. I should let folks know that I I think, if I recall, at about age nine, you went to a camp and went there for many years until it it, it closed down. Correct. And um, because of the experiences, the wonderful experiences you had, somewhere along the line, you and Elizabeth made the decision, we have to start a camp for kids with disabilities, just like me, so they can... They can fulfill their dreams. They, they can have more uh, of, of these wonderful life experiences. Um, that's what drove you to make this decision to scale El Cap for all practical purposes, right? Yep. yep. One, so, 
One of the reasons, the other reason was to show the kids around the world that their disability, they can do anything they put their mind to, even if it's hard or not. You put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember in, in the video, there was a movie, the son of the founder of the camp that you went to as a kid made made the comment that kids burn a hole in your heart. I think that's the person that said that. And th that struck such a responsive chord for me. Well, let's let's turn to the camp. Other than this, I got to go back to Elizabeth because I, I said I would. Elizabeth, did you have any idea what was happening during the scale of LCAP? We see it because the, the, the great photography, cinematography, and it's very, very compelling. Did you have any idea what they were experiencing during that climb? Not one bit. Not one bit. So the, <clears throat> the after his first day of climbing, just and it helps with scale, um, the mountain is so massive that after his first day of climbing, 12 hours, we couldn't see him with the naked eye. That's how big that mountain is. Um, and he had two climbing guides. Um, and thankfully, um, to protect me, every single day, I got to talk to them. And sometimes I'd get to talk to Steven, sometimes I wouldn't. But every day, they would tell me that he was <laughs> he was doing great and that he slept well and everything was going well. Oh the most severe report that I got was that he was a little tired. Um, oh. And I believed them. Um, but in the meantime, he was hallucinating. He was unconscious. He was delirious. Um, and and what, I didn't know any of that. What people don't know, it wasn't portrayed in the film itself. But I didn't sleep for eight straight days. Oh my gosh. And that was part of that problem. Oh. Yeah, but the problem was the lack of sleep. Well, thanks for sharing that because I, I, oh, I, I, every, as I watched it, I said to myself, so you're transitioning from your chair. Yeah. To the to the cot. Correct. And I said to myself, how can anyone be comfortable on that cot? Knowing okay. It's One not. last question. One la last question before we go to the, the camp and the, the foundation. Yeah. Elizabeth, when you called up and you learned he didn't want to talk. Right. That must have struck uh, a really deep, profound chord for you. Well, what had happened is <clears throat> we knew going into it before he ever began the climb that there was one day that he had to maneuver over a rock that was sticking out from the side of the mountain. It protruded out from the wall. And we knew in advance that that was going to be the hardest day by far, day four. Um, and so I, I, I didn't sleep all night the night before, um, anticipating that day, just trying to come up with anything 
to say to encourage him. And so I, um, I was all jacked up to tell him, you know, what I had thought of and um, some wise words that didn't exist. And when, when I went to tell him those things, he felt that anything I would say would throw him off track. So he didn't want to hear it. And I didn't care. It was just if it was going to help him. Not that I had anything. What? Like, what what was I going to do? Yeah. I I, I don't know. It's all I had was to try to encourage him. Um, But that is absolutely not what he needed. And so I I was fine with it. The the other issue (laughs) was they they told me that Diane's yeah. Diane Sawyer was going to call me. And I said, I don't, I don't want to talk to her either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the NBC, NBC Nightly News was calling. And um, yeah. Yeah. Um, David. John Muir. No, not John David, Muir. David Muir. David Muir was on the phone with Stephen. Yeah. And it's ironic because we were trying with Stevens Klein to get the word out about our foundation and kids with disabilities. So to to have the opportunity to have NBC Nightly News actually call was a big deal. But he was so out of it that he said, no, I don't want to. Like, well, you're gonna. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> so he did. He did, but... He, I don't think you even knew who that was at that point. No, you I, so out of it. I had no idea yeah. who David Muir was. Or Diane Sawyer or I, me. I, I, I knew who Diane Sawyer was, but I had no idea he was who the, David Muir You were so out of it. So <laughs> yeah. really out of it. Out yep. of it. So, so Camp Womp, was it established in 2004 or 2002? 2002. Yep. So, this is the 20 coming up on the 22nd season. Would that yep. be correct? Yep. Right. Correct. And, and again, folks, go to the website. But the, the dates for camps this year, if I have this incorrect, please tell me. Okay. Uh, July 7th through the 13th, that's for 13 through 18 year olds. Yep. July 14th through the 20th for 8 through 12 year olds. 21st through the 27th for 13 through 18-year-olds, and then the 25th through August 3rd for 8 through 18-year-olds. Right. So my here are my first two questions. Why is it broken up in uh, by by age, number one, and and number two, are are a lot of the the kids that come, are they in need of support financially through through the foundation or through others to get there? And I'll go to you first, Stephen. Um, I would say the reason why the camp is broken up into ages is because I don't, an 18-year-old can't relate to an 8-year-old, an 8-year-old can't relate to an 8-year-old. Before I would break up eight to like thirteen and fourteen to eighteen. They're more relatable in that sense. Okay. Okay. And then every child that we 
take have a scholarship of some sort. It, it, it's so expensive to raise a child with a disability that the first thing we thought to do way back in 2002 um, is to make sure that we found funding and that we raised money so that the parents didn't have the obstacle of money to be what kept them from joining us at camp. So all the all the kids' camp experience is paid for by individual donors, foundations, and um, corporations. Oh, wow. And they fill out an application on the website. That's right. That's right. And then we have a very extensive um, interview process to make sure that the, the child is safe and able to attend the camp. Um, all the kids that we host have physical disabilities only. Of course, we, um, we promote all disabilities and, and are trying to educate and inform um, people in our, in our different social media platforms about all disabilities, but our specific camp caters only to kids with physical disabilities from, from anywhere uh, really, really around the world. So far it's been within the United States, yeah. but to us, a child's a child. So if they come from wherever it is in the world, it's perfect with us. Okay. I, I'm going to assume that for some of the kids and what a wonderful gift that they're, their experiences paid for it. That number one, it's not easy for a lot of them. And number two, it, it for some pretty expensive to transport from point A to point B. Right. And mm -hmm. so what a wonderful gift. Yeah. Um, very generous, large group of people who have been beyond supportive. Not to yeah. say we always need more support, right. for sure, but, but it's always an uphill battle with the nonprofit, even one that's, you know, thriving. In the best of times. In the best of times, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but it is hard to transport. It is, yeah, a lot of it's difficult. Stephen, what? Go ahead. The difference between our camp and most camp is the kids are outside 24-7. There's no indoor anything. We have oh. a lot of facilities. We have 18 buildings. But Stephen is, uh, he's kind of a, he's a very friendly stickler on this yeah. point. Um, the advancement that he gained as a child when he was a camper came from Pushing yourself, right? Yes. Just and and being outside, being in the elements, being in the in the woods. And so while we have a bunch of cabins, all of our campers sleep outdoors, not even in tents. They sleep on cots under the stars. Yeah. And so the girls are all together, each child having their own counselor. The girls are together and the boys are in another area um, under the stars every single night. Did you say they each have a counselor? Every yeah. child has their own counselor. Yeah, oh one ratio. Yep. Yeah. So what? Uh, what? What's the maximum number of kids that can attend a camp? And then the second question is: in addition to counselors, 
Are there also some medical staff um, that are on site? Stephen. Uh, yeah, we are ACA accredited, which is a big deal. Um, we are, we let medical staff, we go through rigorous training. Every counselor goes through, so we all hand on training. Um, we have this volunteers, a doctor on call, um, a infirmary with everything that you can imagine. If something goes wrong, yeah. Um, yeah, we're. I, I like to. I like the comfort level that we can provide parents because we are very, very, very meticulous um, in all areas of safety and comfort and uh, uh, preparedness on all levels. So um, ACA is American Camping Association and our mm-hmm. proud, proud, proud of our camp director who got an unprecedented perfect score. So we're very proud of her and very proud of that. And, and how many uh, campers uh, uh, oh, per week? 25 per 25 per session. So we have 100 campers a summer. Okay. And what what's the number of volunteers that um, are required to make that work? The, the number of campers is 25. The number of campers is 25 to 30. We have CIT, which is camper in training. There are 10 to 12 of those people. And then most volunteers are probably the 10 to 15 number range. Yeah. Our counselors are, are paid staff. We pay our counselors. We pay. We have a nature director. We have a waterfront staff, lifeguards, uh, kitchen staff, medical staff, like we mentioned, um, and um, and then some volunteers on top of that. As you can imagine, it's very, very, very tiring. These our counselors are troopers. Yeah. I know our counselors are troopers, but it gets tiring. And so we have a little um, code. And any counselor at any time can say, I need to go find my purple bandana, which means I need to go take a nap. And we have floaters that come in and and can take compensate. Over. Are the volunteers, um, do they switch out per session or are they the volunteers that were the first group for all four groups? We did have volunteers come in for a week or two weeks, different mm-hmm. volunteers come and go. Um, we we prefer if our staff can stay the whole yeah. time. Our, our regular staff normally stay the whole time. We have different um, volunteers during the month. And obviously, the the there's a a form on the website for people that have right. an interest. They right. should fill that out. That's right. Do you mind if I go plug our computer in? Oh no, go right ahead. Yeah. So basically, we our camp goes from. Basically, the two bus on site to 85 to 90 people for a month, a little more than a month um, during the summer. So we have a small city, if you will, that basically comes together and is a community for five five weeks out of the 
summer. Stephen, how many wheelchairs have you gone through during your lifetime? Yeah, I would say 25, at least 25. Way back when, I'm not going to name names, but I would go to a chair like every year because they were they weren't well built at the time. And I'm really, really hard on my on my yep chairs. Um, the camp is all dirt, rock, and my my chair goes anywhere I want to go. So go ahead. I don't let my chair limit me to where I can and cannot go. The, the, your first chairs, I'm assuming, were uh, far more limited in terms of technology and mobility than the chairs now? Oh, God, yeah. My, my first chair would break just, I don't even know why. <laughs> they would just... Uh, Peter out, and my dad would get uh, upset every a couple, a couple months because the repairman was always at my house. <laughs> but now, I I can go. My last term died at camp uh, in July, and I had that chair for eleven years. Wow. Yeah. Elizabeth, I forgot to ask you this, and I apologize. What, what were you studying? Or what did you study uh, in college? Okay. What's your background? Education. But then I went immediately into the nonprofit world. <laughs> so I was the program director for the USO. Okay. Yeah. The Bob what, Bob was Bob. this pre-Steven? It was. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That was not a nice way to say that, Stephen. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it worked. I got the answer. We'll be together uh, 50, uh, 30 years on February 15th. Yeah. But not married. That You've been together. You're, you're married yeah. about 28. We're married 28. Our first date was February 15th. Yeah. Okay. 1994. Yeah. Our, ours dates are similar in terms of the number of years we've been married and how long we've known each other, that kind of thing. Nice. Very, very similar. Nice. Um, the, uh, uh, back to the camp. Yeah. So here, here we are. Uh, was that February 1st today? Yeah, February 1st. Yeah, it is. Are, are all those dates booked? Uh, you mean are we full? Yes. No, we're not full yet, but um, Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook are basically exploding right now. And Instagram, we, we've been inundated in the last month by camper applications. Right. So we're not we're we're not full, but we're um, but it's bustling. <laughs> There's a lot of interest, which is very unusual for us so early in the year. Yeah. Yeah. The applicants that um, don't make it, for lack of better terminology, 
is it typically because they're applying late? And that's why I brought the, the, the question up. Here we are February 1st, and it's in right. July. Right. So if you're interested, you probably should start moving. Right. Yeah. That's correct. I I would say the applicants that don't make it um, are the kids that either don't show up to the interview or the kid has, I'm sorry to say, a mental disability. And we are remote out in the middle of nowhere and we can't take on the legality of a child breaking out and mm-hmm. wandering into the for, into the forest. Yeah. Not and, that we don't watch them fanatically, right. but um, we use our camp as a stepping stone um, to a child's life. So the kids, the kids that are a perfect fit are ones that have aspirations of normalcy. And if they don't have it yet, then their parents do for them. And um, we just, we have had so many triumph stories is what we call them. So our campers um, in crazy numbers have um, gone on to college. If that was their path, they have, um, they have careers, they have houses. We have four, our oldest campers are 34 years old. We have four um, married campers now. We have four engaged campers and we have two camp want babies. Yeah. <laughs> means the world. Yeah. It absolutely means the world. Well, that's the same number that you two have. You have a son and a daughter. Exactly. We have two. Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth, I'm going to kind of circle back to uh, one of our earlier questions. Mm-hmm. For Because we, we are all... Uh, you know, have different life experiences based on where we live, our uh, our familiar situation, that kind of thing. Um, and p- plenty of people are nervous about asking about disabilities. What would you recommend for anyone and everyone when it comes to if it, maybe this is a new experience for you, you haven't met or dealt with someone personally or up close with a disability, what words of encouragement would you give them? Well, it's interesting you say that because there are two schools of thought. One is um, my disability is not any of your business and it is my personal body and this is private and uh, don't bug me. (laughs) And we, of course, respect that and completely understand it. It has just been my personal experience watching Stephen for 30 years and his level of openness, specifically about his disability, his lightheartedness about his disability has allowed for every connection that any human being could possibly want. So I would I would beg people to consider to, to at least consider an open stance um, as it relates to people's curiosity about their disability. And again, I have to go back and, and repeat that when we're talking about somebody's disability of any type, whether it's related to their brain or their physical body or both, it is very personal. And so I imagine it's very uncomfortable to have anybody come up and say, as little kids do, 
all the time. Yeah. Quote, what's wrong oh. with you? <laughs> what's wrong with you? Right. And yep. what happened to you? Which all of it, right? I, I answer the question. Yeah. Um, and and I would say that <clears throat> I come at this so strongly. I feel so strongly about this because I've watched the two different approaches. One it feels to me, and I've witnessed countless times, the approach of the closed, it's private, I don't want to talk about it, has kept a social wedge often between people who do and don't have disabilities. What I've learned about Stephen's approach is this openness, ask away, I get it, you're curious. It's a, it's a nuance to disability. And if you are willing if you're a parent, if you're willing to talk about your child's disability, what I have found countless times is it gets the elephant out of the room. And once people are no longer curious about another person's disability, the disability goes away. Mm. It started with me. Biggest epiphany I've ever had. Once I had all my curiosity out of the way, I could get down to the business of knowing a human being. And mm. then I watched it for 30 years, almost to the day. I watched two different approaches and one is just, one has been glorious to watch and one has been um, one that I see people struggle in. Um, And so again, I, you know, it's hard to encroach upon someone's personal being. And I understand that. I I love that you use the analogy of, a wedge because one of the things a wedge does once it's inserted between point a and point b on its own it can keep driving a and b further apart separates yeah that's that's a beautiful way to to look at it and i it's just i would never i i don't i don't like to be controversial. I don't like to, I love it when people live and let live. I think that's a great way to go about it. It's just that I've seen it so many times that I wish I could, I wish I could whisper in everybody's ear to please, I'm begging you try to be open about your disability, Mm -hmm. even though it's weird, even though it's a bummer, it has to be like that. The, the, the good outweighs the nosy (laughs) so profoundly that I feel compelled to say it. And I would say, ask any question. You might get resentment, resistance and resentment, but most of the time you you won't get, you'll get a positive outcome. Everyone, if they have a disability, knows they have a disability. And I, I would, I would maybe, yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ask, and I would take it one step further to say, if you get if you get flicked on the on the shoulder for that, and if someone's annoyed that you've asked, that's not everyone. That's not everyone. Try it again with the next person because yeah. you might, with that bravery, have the experience of a connection with a disability that is everything you want in your life. That you you know. Um, it could be just profound and wonderful, and I'm living that. Yeah. You know, I we're getting close to we're wrapping up, and first of all, I want to thank both of you again for not just taking time to share with me today and my listeners and followers, but for being so transparent with how you use social media 
and how you share the story. And and I also know that it isn't just about raising awareness for Camp Womp. It's about raising awareness for people that have disabilities and how uh, you can be really normal. You can have a normal life, uh, uh, irrespective of whether you have a disability or not. Thank, thank you. It, 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 thank you for sharing your love. If if, if that you. makes sense, yeah. it's just you just just a, it's so precious what you've done, Stephen. I'm going to ask you this question, and, and it has to do with your philosophy and approach to life where um, everyone has a dream and doing what we can. And in your case, doing what you can with the foundation and camp want to help kids with disabilities have dreams and have um, their dreams fulfilled. If you could wave a magic wand over the heads of uh, and in this case, kids that have disabilities and, and the families of the kids that are dealing with their kids that have disabilities. What's the one thing you want them to know about the importance of their dreams and working to fulfill them? Um, I would say that anything is possible with hard work and and um, stick to it, stick to it. Um, and it might be hard. It might not have been hard in many, many ways, but I've overcome a lot. And all of it. Um, I would say just have a have that dream and stick to it. Just believe in it, and you'll get you'll get there at some point in life. His his disability has never been an excuse mm. for no. anything, and he's always had massive expectations of himself. Of himself. Well, that just came from what Stephen shared. That just came from a person that scaled El Capitan. 7,500 plus feet where people without limitations um, not only have failed, but um, perished by a guy that one of the people in the film said, I'm going to give him maybe a 10% chance, maybe a 10% chance. And he did it in six days. The average climber Average climber does it in four to six days. And Stephen J. Wampler did it in six. Folks, it's Stephen J. Wampler Foundation.org on Instagram, the dot Wampler. Again, that's W-A-M-P-L-E-R dot way, the, the dot Wampler dot way. Go to the website, go to the, follow them on Instagram because they're making a difference for so many, which means they're making a difference for all of us. Thank you for taking time to, God bless you. Thank you for what you're doing. I so appreciate your time today and I really appreciate what you're doing for all of us. Thank you, Mike. Thank so you, much. thank you very much. We really enjoyed it a lot. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure, thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye.